0: Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to The Legal Talk Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg a 3L at Syracuse University College of Law JDI Program. Today we are honored to have with us again Vice Dean and Professor of Law at Syracuse University College of Law, Keith Bybee. He holds a tenured appointment in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs as well, and directs the Institute for the Study of the Judiciary, Politics, and the Media, a collaborative effort among the College of Law, the Maxwell School, and the S.I. Newhouse School of Public Communications. Among Professor Bybee's areas of research interest are the judicial process, LGBT politics, the politics of race and ethnicity. American politics, constitutional law, and the media. His research and books address these issues, as well as one concerning civility, how civility works. We spoke with Professor Bybee in our last episode, shortly after the leaked draft of the Dobbs case before the Supreme Court. Now it is out. And Professor Bybee joins us again to talk about it. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me again.
1: So, impressions of the Dobbs decision focused on substantive due process, history. Did the Supreme Court convince you?
2: Well, uh, I was persuaded that, uh, Justice Alito and the five justices that support him are firmly convinced, uh, of the correctness of their point of view. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of confidence, uh, in that opinion, even, uh, anger and impatience at alternative points of view. So, uh, for example, the court does not just overrule uh, Roe and Casey because they're wrong, but because they are, in the language of the court, egregiously wrong. Uh, It's not just that uh, it's a misstep that the court has made that must be connected. It's a colossal, historic mistake uh, that has distorted the law for the past half century. Uh, that has uh, presented a wholly unworkable and damaging standard uh, and has uh, distorted and had a negative impact on other areas of law beyond uh, those concerning abortion. All of that is the point of view of the majority. So the, the tone of the opinion uh, is very strong. If you've ever been in a, a hiring meeting, Meg, where you're trying to decide between different applicants for a position, Sometimes there can be a dynamic where people will decide, oh, not just that candidate A is better than candidates B and C, but people will talk themselves into a position where candidates B and C are unemployable. But there's no way anybody would ever want to hire them. We must go with candidate A. And that's the, the, the tone and quality of this majority opinion. There is no other way uh, other than overturning Roe and Casey outright. Because they are so egregiously in error.
1: You know, it's interesting you say that because that was the impression I had, too. It was almost as if someone was trying so hard to win an argument, they were throwing everything at it. And this is just law student perspective. I felt one point in particular or one one thread throughout it was also the historical reference and the fact that, well, if they wanted abortion when the 14th Amendment was um, added, they could have... They could have referenced it. They could have provided that. At the same time, if I know this, Justice Alito and the rest of the justices know, women didn't even have a right to vote. In fact, it was the first time the word male was inserted into the Constitution. And so I felt I felt as though there was a level of, um, it was rather disingenuous and almost dishonest in that. Is that appropriate even to say? Is that?
2: <laughs> it is the case, and this is not true of just the Dobbs opinion, but- um, It is the case that uh, in its decision making, the court will often sort of shape the evidence and arguments that it brings forth so they're completely consistent with the conclusion that it reaches, right? So there's a way in which um, you could call it calibration between uh, um, the evidence presented or the arguments presented and the conclusion reached. And uh, there's certainly that going on here. I mean, For example, and this speaks directly to the the point you're talking about here, the the role of history, right? So uh, the majority opinion says that there are two classes of rights, and this is, of course, widely accepted. There are those that are explicitly enumerated in the Constitution, um, that the court protects from uh, undue regulation. Uh, And then there are those rights that are deemed to be fundamental by the court, but are not actually explicitly listed in the Constitution. They're implied or inferred in, in some fashion. Now there have been a variety of different uh, past opinions where the court has identified different implied fundamental rights and in doing so has used different methodologies. Uh, One of them has been to look specifically at the text of the Constitution, and sometimes the court insists that the inference uh, of an implied fundamental right must be tightly connected to the text. Other times, the court has allowed uh, for a very loose chain of inferences that identifies uh, an implied fundamental right a number of steps away from the, the plain text of the constitution itself. Other times, uh, the court has uh, called attention to consequences. So what would it be like if, if, if such an implied fundamental right didn't exist? That's part of the argument the court makes along the way towards identifying uh, an implied fundamental right. Other times, the court has looked to history. Now, sometimes when it's looked to history, it's, it's uh, looked to it in the way that The majority does in Dobbs, which is to say, is the um, purported right that we are being asked to infer or imply deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions and, and implicit in the ordered concept of liberty? And it's really sort of let's look at history and see if we find specific, concrete examples in statutes and in, say, state constitutional law that reflect the existence of the very right we bring called upon to identify now, imply or infer from the Constitution. That's one way of looking at history. But another way, used in other cases, is to say, as we look to history, we must not only be aware of our traditions that we have, but we must also be aware of the traditions from which we have broken. That is to say, we have to treat uh, our history and traditions as a developing process, an evolving process. So we have to look at not only where we've been, but where we're going. That's very different use of history uh, than the uh, majority in Dobbs. The Dobbs majority, though, insists there's only one method, even though there's this, this this is a plurality of methods and approaches. But there's only one method for implying or inferring a fundamental right, and that is the deeply rooted historical method. Now there are in, in this in this sense, this is you know. You can say it's disingenuous or dishonest, or you could say, I suppose, it's incomplete to to claim it's Mm -hmm. just that. So, for example, Obergefell v. Hodges is the decision in which the court recognized that there's a fundamental right to same-sex marriage. In that case, the majority opinion noted that there is approach, one approach, to identifying applied fundamental rights that tells us to look for deeply rooted, concrete practices in our history and tradition. And the Obergefell Court majority says that's appropriate for some implied fundamental rights. Uh, the case that comes from, by the way, most recently is Washington v. Glucksburg, cited many times by the Dobbs majority, and concerns uh, uh, whether or not there's an implied fundamental right to assisted suicide. The Obergefell Court says that's fine, for rights like that. But when it comes to rights like the ones we're talking about here in Obergefell, the right to privacy, which addresses uh, questions uh, uh, relating to choices of sexual partners, contraception, family size, procreation, the decision whether or not to have an abortion. That's not how we talk about the derivation of that implied fundamental right. And the Dobbs court never mentions that never mentions that uh, a majority of the court has explicitly said there's a variety of different ways of implying fundamental rights, not just one. So what does that mean? Uh, It might mean that one of the many uh, areas of new ground that the Dobbs Court is breaking is to say from this point forward, there will only be one right, uh, one way rather, to identify implied fundamental rights. And that is by looking to our histories and traditions to identify what is deeply rooted therein. That could be. The problem with that, claiming that that is one of the rulings of the uh, of Dobbs, is that the Dobbs majority itself says that their ruling has no significance or impact or import for um, other implied fundamental rights, like the ones I just mentioned, which were derived using different methods. So you know, okay, how can that be, right? And we can talk about that. How how can the court kind of, in a sense, have its cake and eat it too? How can it claim that this is the appropriate method for identifying an implied fundamental right in this context and not call into question all those other implied fundamental rights that were derived by not relying on what was deeply rooted in our history, but rather relying on a suite of other arguments, arguments from consequences. Arguments uh, from constitutional text, relatively loose inferences from constitutional text. Arguments from history treated as a living, evolving, developing phenomenon where we have to, as I say, not only understand where we've been, but where we're headed. How can the court maintain that its approach in DOMS doesn't undermine those other implied fundamental rights?
1: So when Justice Thomas... Set himself apart from the others and saying, "No, this is we do need to consider." Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, Eisen um, Eisenstadt. Is he doing that as a way to stand out, as a way to start groupthink mentality around it, or is? And his argument was, "Get rid of substantive due process. There's no such thing." And I believe it was his opinion that said look elsewhere. Let's start looking elsewhere. I mean, do you see, is, is that?
2: <laughs> well, for, that is consistent. Thomas is being consistent with himself yeah. here, right? I mean, he has staked yeah. out this position, often just writing for himself.
1: I think he cited himself numerous <laughs> times does, throughout. <laughs>
2: it was, yes. Well, yes. He, he, well, his opinions would be the only ones to cite, right? Because he's, he's been making this argument independently in separate opinions. Sometimes those opinions are dissents, um, sometimes they're concurrences but he will often write separately because he stakes out a position that no one else is is joining. And he welcomes uh, the embrace of a single methodology for identifying uh, implied fundamental rights that would greatly reduce uh, and actually probably eliminate many of the rights that have been implied in the modern era of constitutional law. And Thomas doesn't have any problems with that because he thinks it's been fundamentally unprincipled of the court to use any different methodology for implying fundamental rights, uh, he we would correct the mistakes that were made in cases like Griswold, Obergefell, Lawrence v. Texas. Lawrence v. Texas is where the court recognized an implied fundamental right to same-sex sex. Uh, so it would be another one that would go, um, and Evings said that would then open the opportunity to explore some constitutional avenues uh, that have long been blocked. Uh, so Thomas, for example, thinks it might be possible that there are rights guaranteed by the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause. The first section of the 14th Amendment guarantees uh, privileges and immunities of United States citizenship uh, from being denied by the states. So the question is, well, what's What's the content of those privileges and immunities? Uh, in a case from the 1870s called Slaughterhouse, the Supreme Court uh, decided the content of the uh, privileges and immunities of the United States citizenship and said that they weren't really that important. Um, a lot of the the basic fundamental rights uh, that we have as uh, as free citizens are privileges and immunities of state citizenship, not privileges and immunities of United States citizenship. Thomas disagrees with that long, settled decision. and He thinks that there, there might be uh, more important rights uh, included under that heading or rubric, Of privileges and immunities of United States citizenship, and we should take a look. Now, it may turn out, and I think, I suspect this is where Thomas is going the only rights included in the privileges and immunities of United States citizenship are those explicitly listed in the Bill of Rights. So that would allow for incorporation. Incorporation is the process by which the Supreme Court decides which of the rights in the Bill of Rights apply to the states. The original Bill of Rights, which was added to the Constitution really as a concession to the anti-federalist opponents of the Constitution that were worried about the federal government um, consolidating so much power and acting tyrannically, denying individuals their rights, was a guarantee of a roster of rights against federal encroachment. Those rights um, limited what the federal government could do in the Bill of Rights. They didn't limit what the state governments could do. When the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution, it had a number of significant limitations on what the state governments could do. And the court over process of incorporation has been selectively identifying rights from the Bill of Rights and saying that they too uh, can be protected from state-level encroachment. So Thomas uh, has been kind of heading down a road um, more or less alone on the court, although not unsupported necessarily by the work of, of some scholars, but heading down a road where he could say that um, all of the rights from the Bill of Rights, um, not, not not all of them, some of them would be would be excluded. Um, most of them could uh, comfortably be uh, included in the category of privileges and immunities of United States citizenship, um, and therefore incorporated against the states. But so so Thomas has got a whole constitutional project, right, that he's on. But he himself, he sees absolutely no problem with taking the next step from Dobbs uh, and and saying, yes, this does indeed call into question all these other uh, implied fundamental rights that uh, the court has been operating with uh, from the 1960s forward. Actually, earlier than that, 1940s, uh, right to procreate in Skinner v. Oklahoma, that was a, a case in the early 1940s. Uh, so for, you know, a very long time, 80 years, uh, um, these these have been part of our constitutional law. Thomas would be comfortable calling to the question, but not the court majority.
1: In reading the majority, do you take them at their word that they will leave the other cases alone? And I know that's not there. That something has to rise up and go through. But... Um, Yeah, I guess I found it very interesting that they said, no, we'll we'll leave these alone because this doesn't concern potential life, when in actuality it does because it's contraceptives and it's same-sex sex -sex or sex or whatever it might be. They're all still related in that sense to potential life. So I found that language curious. But do you take them for their word after reading that opinion?
2: Well, it's a... uh, (laughs) You know, the only point in the opinion, it seems to be, that uh, fetal life becomes an uh, important ground for decision making is to distinguish abortion from these other implied fundamental rights. Right? The overturning of Roe and the overturning of Casey um, is rooted principally in the lack of historical antecedent for the right to have an abortion, Right, that it's not deeply rooted in our history and traditions. It's the principal reason, although there are others that are offered. Um, It's not that fetuses are persons in a constitutional sense and therefore have due process rights, not to have their life, liberty or property deprived, right, without due Mm -hmm. process of law. The majority does not take that position. Um, In fact, if it were to take that position, then it couldn't say that it was allowing states to regulate in this area more or less as they like, allowing some states to offer more protection for the decision of whether or not to have abortion than is currently enjoyed under Casey. Um, and allowing other states, of course, to uh, eliminate uh, um, abortion in virtually all circumstances. So, if it were the case that uh, there was a fetal personhood in a constitutional sense, then you couldn't allow. Uh, there would be all kinds of problems with allowing uh, abortion anywhere, mm-hmm. right? So. It's a little hard since they bring that in just for the case of separating off abortion from everything else. It doesn't seem really deeply grounded. I, I think one thing you can do looking at this decision is, is see that they could lose, the majority could be lost if that effort were made, right? Um, so the decision to uphold Mississippi's law was six to three. So that's a uh, in uh, you know, five-member majority, it was fully on board, and Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts concurring in result. Okay, so um, and then one of uh, the people in the 5 justice majority is Justice Kavanaugh, who said explicitly, "This does not extend." Right? I want, you know. He repeats over and over again. There's no way that anything we're saying here in any way calls into question the constitutionality of a right to contraception or um, uh, right to same-sex marriage, right? None of those things are on the table. So that six member majority that is in favor of upholding Mississippi's law could melt to a four member plurality, maybe, uh, if there was an effort to extend the analysis of Dobbs to these other implied fundamental rights. So could be that the that their word is good in the sense that at least in the minimal sense that there aren't five votes to take it any further. Now, you said, well, of course, something would have to come up to the court, right? The court is not, uh, doesn't have power to just sort of take up any issue it wants. But look at how uh, this decision or how this issue uh, arose for the court now, right? There's a long history uh, in the context of abortion of, um, of states pushing the envelope, passing laws that they know under current law are unconstitutional in order to give a, uh, present a vehicle for a, a new majority on the court to test It's, uh, you know, it's commitment to precedent that happened in Casey. I mean, there were the law that was issued in Casey enacted restrictions on abortion that had already been overturned by the court applying Roe in other contexts. Right. So it was brought forward specifically because there were new members on the court. With the membership change in the court, we had a number of states uh, pass legislation that was clearly uh, in, in, in tension with one part or another of Casey. Um, and, and did so specifically to get it up to the court. Um, you know, Mississippi prohibited abortions after 15 weeks. Texas prohibited them after six, right? And so there was a, a number of states that are um, uh, passing laws to get them in front of the court. There are still laws in some states that are on the books prohibiting contraception, right? They just sort of left there, not unrepealed, after Griswold, which is where a fundamental right to use um, uh, um, contraceptive, at least in uh, in the context of a, of a marriage, was upheld. So, you know, those laws are there. Uh, was to prevent uh, somebody from enforcing them just to get a case up to the court? So it's not as if you need some kind of massive social movement agitating for decades before an issue bubbles its way up to the Supreme Court. Um, it can happen simply because a political actor decides to make a case. It's the ultimate choice is up to the court, whether it decides to hear a case that's appealed to it. The court is currently hearing less than 4 percent, I'm sorry, less than 1 percent of the cases appealed to it. It only takes four votes to hear a case. So that's not a lot of barriers or obstacles to getting a suit that challenges one of these other applications of an implied fundamental right, say to same-sex marriage to the level of the Supreme Court. I don't think that's the limitation. The question is really internal to the Supreme Court itself. Are there the votes to extend the rationale of Dobbs to call in question and actually invalidate one of these other implied fundamental rights?
1: We are speaking with Professor of Law, Vice Dean at Syracuse University College of Law, Keith Bybee. We'll be right back. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time.
2: This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. It's never too early to start exploring potential practice areas and building your network in the field. The Law Student Division provides students like you with resources and experiences aimed at helping them succeed in law school and prepare for what's next. Claim your full law student membership for just
0: $25 by visiting ambar.org/join.
1: And we are back now with Keith Bybee, professor of law and vice dean at Syracuse University College of Law. So did anything in the 213-page Dobbs decision surprise you? Did anything really change from the draft?
2: Well, you know, I was, I was very surprised by the draft itself, or the, the fact of the leak. Mm. Um, also, the, the tone and strength uh, of, of the language uh, in the draft. And the kind of decisiveness. There were no half measures uh, in in the leaked uh, opinion. So uh, I guess in a way I I can't say I was shocked (laughs) by the official decision. It does seem to be the case. I haven't done this myself, but I've read reports from several people who've redlined uh, the official decision, comparing it against the leaked uh, draft. And there are very few or no material changes uh, between the leaked draft and the official opinion. There is additional sections uh, in the official opinion where the majority is responding to uh, concurrence uh, written by uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts and, and the dissent, which appears to be a joint dissent written by uh, Justices uh, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Uh, uh, the practice usually in the Supreme Court is a single justice will author, say, a majority opinion or concurrence or dissent, and other justices who agree will will join that opinion. But it's not unprecedented, uh, although it's it's unusual, uh, for justices to jointly author uh, an opinion, um, be that the majority opinion, concurrence, or a dissent. It happened in Casey. Uh, That was probably one of the most famous instances where three justices jointly authored the uh, the opinion in which... uh, Core holding of Roe was maintained, and the undue burden standard was introduced. uh, Where justices uh, um, Souter, uh, O'Connor, and Kennedy they jointly authored it, kind of as a troika. Uh, The dissenters in Dobbs are listed jointly as authors. It's not written by, say, Kagan and joined by the other two. They're all listed. So the majority opinion differs from the draft in the sense that there are responses. Uh, Those responses are not particularly illuminating. Uh, They're very consistent with. Um, the uh, the arguments from the main part of majority opinion. So for example, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who concurs only in the results, he agrees uh, that uh, Mississippi should be allowed to prohibit abortions after 14 weeks, which is b- point before the point of viability. Um, under Casey, it's only uh, after viability that states uh, would have been able to constitutionally prohibit abortions altogether. He agrees that that change should be allowed, uh, that change in the law, and therefore Mississippi should be allowed to do what it wants. But he otherwise would not return, overturn Roe and Casey. He would still recognize that there is an implied fundamental right to privacy that is broad enough to include the decision of whether or not to have an abortion. The majority responds to uh, by Roberts by saying um, there's no warrant, uh, you know, uh, for this kind of minimalism. It doesn't solve any problem, right? I mean, we would we'd have to confront this fundamental question sooner or later, so we might as well rip the Band-Aid off now, right? Uh, those aren't, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> they rip the Band-Aid off, but uh, this, that's the gist, right? And then they also say that it's okay to be minimalist, uh, but you have to be right, right? You can't just be minimalist for the sake of trying to um, reduce the amount of controversy a decision produces. Uh, your, and they, they actually cite to opinions that Roberts himself wrote in other cases where he rejected a minimalist approach for the sake of declaring uh, particular unconstitutionals so that kind of throw that back in his face. That's a typical uh, majority, not just this majority. Majority often does that uh, to concurrences and dissents. It tries to hoist the concurters and dissenters by their own petard, as it were, and say that, well, if, if you read what the old Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts said, <laughs> then you wouldn't Uh, You wouldn't uh, uh, write a concurrence just sticking to agreeing with the result. You would adopt our reasoning. And the majority rejects uh, the dissenters, largely because the dissenters do not limit themselves to this approach to inferring the implied fundamental right in question that is limited to those rights that are deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. It's fundamental disagreement there. And so, of course, the majority can say, you're not... You know, you offer no historical evidence that identifies the existence of this right concretely and deeply rooted in our tradition. Of course, the dissenters say, yes, you're right. We don't do that because we think this right is grounded otherwise. So uh, the majority can just simply dismiss most of what the dissent says because the, they're, they're talking past each other at this point. So is that surprising the, the new bits that came out in the, uh, uh, the official decision... Not really surprising. Again, it's sort of more typical. But the the breadth of this decision, uh, even though there are many uncertainties about it, the core of it, that uh, an implied fundamental right that had been recognized by the court for nearly 50 years, um, uh, which had been reaffirmed by the court and applied by the court in dozens of decisions, has now been removed. That's a big deal. And that, uh, um, depending how you define what's happened in the past, it's either unprecedented or it's happened very rarely in the past. Some could point back to the the end of the Great Depression and the constitutional transformation that happened in the late 1930s as maybe being analogous, but it's a very big deal. What the decision does accomplish is enormously important.
1: I think one of the things, in addition to the historical references, um, Justice Alito, emphasizing that this move places the abortion debate where it belongs and in the hands of the people, and Justice Kavanaugh also mirroring that. But both of them kept saying 26 states asked us to do this. Millions of people asked us to do this. And I thought, to me, that seemed interesting because it seemed to be more of a legislative argument. Here they were arguing the whole time that this was very legislative in nature, but I felt that their responses we're also legislative in nature saying, look at what 26 states asked us to do. And it's, I thought, well, that's not the law. You're saying 26 states asked us to do that. Do you th- was that indicative of politics to you or was that just indicative of we're trying to just bring in everything to show you why we're at where we're at? Uh,
2: yeah, this, these are examples of the venerable constitutional principle, any port in a storm, right? So we often see this. Happening, so we can certainly identify instances of this in in Dobbs, so for example there there's what you say right there right uh, that Roe was criticized uh, because by the Dobbs majority uh, because the court there was acting not as a court but essentially as a legislature it was uh um, doing its all kind of its own independent research and it was uh, coming up with a regulatory schema um, that mm-hmm. uh, really is the sort of thing that you would expect to come out of a legislative body or a, um, an agency, right, tasked with implementing um, a, a broad legislative plan in detail rather than a court, right? So that was one of the reasons why they said this is a, 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 an egregiously wrong and, and, and a weakly reasoned case. But you're right. Then they turned around and said, but, hey, look, uh, um, these factors – even though they say we can't pay any attention to what's going on outside of the court, we just have to do our job, as Alito says. Um, they do mention that external factor. It's also the case that you know when it comes to history and other references, uh, uh, the history in in Roe is, is either incorrect, uh, according to the Dobbs majority, or irrelevant. Right there's a, in Roe itself, uh, the majority opinion. Uh, goes way back, right, looks at uh, different civilizations that are broadly, uh, you know, antecedent to our our history of the United States. You know, what were the Greeks doing, what were the Romans doing? Also look at different religious traditions, uh, uh, Judaism, uh, Catholicism, different philosophical schools, right? There's a very broad sweep. And um, Nadab's opinion says that's irrelevant, right? Uh, all that stuff's I- irrelevant, L- looking way far into the past and looking at other countries. What does it matter? Except, of course, the Dobbs opinion uh, does go back at one point to the 13th century, um, does make reference to other countries uh, not uh, uh, allowing prohibition of abortion prior to the point of viability. So there's a way in which, when convenient, uh, the majority, or uh, in Kavanaugh's case, uh, the concurring opinion, Will grab for arguments and evidence the very kinds of arguments and evidence that it's actually criticized its opponents for using. That happens all the time uh, at the Supreme Court, and that's one of the reasons why, as a as a law student, um, but also as a law professor or as a uh, just as a citizen, sometimes it's hard to understand uh, how the court is behaving in a way that's um, judicial or legal rather than political. That they're actually constrained by the principles they're using rather than simply uh, manipulating uh, the evidence, arguments, and principles to uh, justify a conclusion that they've already agreed upon. So it is a challenge not only for this opinion, uh, as, as readers and as citizens, for us to to discern um, the degree to which it's a, a judicial act rather than a political act, that's often a challenge that we have as students and as citizens when reading Supreme Court opinions.
1: What are, and, I, and I'm trying to keep this looking at it as, as a law student and understanding this from that perspective. A few fellow students have asked me one thing they would like to know is what are the alternatives now for those who disagree with that? And from the other branches who say they will act, what do you see in response? Executive orders, what works? Commerce clause, spending clause, I mean, where do you go with all of this?
2: Sure. So let me first mention one alternative that seems to have been foreclosed um, by, uh, by the Dobbs opinion, an alternative that has sometimes been raised as an alternative as the court membership has changed and as uh, members of the court have become increasingly hostile towards Casey and Roe. Um, the alternative that has surfaced sometimes is reframing uh, abortion laws rather than thinking about an implied fundamental right to privacy that includes the decision of whether or not to have an abortion. Instead, think about these laws as uh, relying on some kind of sex classification, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. That uh, their abortions are only performed on women. uh, And so could we use that as a way of uh, saying that we should, from an equal protection perspective, forget about implied fundamental rights, um, subject such laws to intermediate-level review, Now, so long as you have an implied fundamental right, the court is at some level protecting that right through strict scrutiny, which is more protective of the right than, say, intermediate level review, which is a step down. But if the only alternative to to, um, intermediate level review is rational basis review, intermediate level review gives you some more protection. It it says the court should be more skeptical in reviewing the regulation of abortion uh, on the grounds of a quasi-suspect classification being used. The Dobbs majority sought to shut that down and said that uh, even though it's true that this abortion regulations apply to a procedure only performed on women, that does not mean that there's a sex classification because there are plenty of women who uh, aren't pregnant, plenty of women who aren't getting abortions, right? The dissent notes that 18% of pregnancies uh, end in abortion now and prior to, to Dobbs and, um, and a large percentage of women under forty-five. I think it, I think um, something like twenty percent maybe will uh, have an abortion. So these these are large numbers, but it's not all of them, right? So um, the court has, in the past, for example, um, in a decision that's controversial uh, in the '70s, said that we shouldn't think of laws that, or practices, government practices that treat people who are pregnant differently from people who aren't pregnant, as involving a sex classification. Because there are both men and women who aren't pregnant, right? So it's not just treating all women differently from all men, and so pregnant persons, uh, a lot of classifies on the basis of pregnancy, um, should not be subject to intermediate level or heightened review. That decision from the '70s is actually cited by the Dobbs majority when they seek to set aside the claim that abortion regulations could now be subject to intermediate level review as sex classification. So that's one alternative that the majority is shutting the door on. Okay. So all we're left with legally is rational basis review. So before we talk about alternatives outside of the courts, what, what's available inside the courtroom, inside the courtroom is making an argument that a given uh, abortion regulation fails rational basis review. Um, that can be hard to do, although not impossible. Uh, rational basis review uh, can be extremely flexible. Uh, rational basis review uh, can be used, if you go back to Caroline Product's uh, decision said in 1938, uh, said that, you know, so long is not as if the legislature has to even do any fact finding, so long as there's any set of facts that could be known that we could presume to know that would be supportive of, uh, of the government's regulation, therefore it's constitutional. And that could be known, Language is used by the Dobbs majority, which suggests that uh, they envision a strongly deferential view of rational basis review being applied to abortion abortion regulations going forward. Under that strongly deferential approach, a law can be um, very poorly drawn, right? It can uh, say, oh, we're, we're interested in protecting health of the pregnant woman. But it can do lots of things that don't protect the health of pregnant woman under the justification that they're simply taking one step at a time towards protecting the health of a pregnant woman. And so it need not be a comprehensive uh, protection uh, of health. Um, laws can be inconsistent. They can be incoherent. The means used by the legislature can actually undermine the goal they say they're pursuing and still be constitutional under deferential rational basis review. The legislature doesn't actually even have to offer reasons. Uh, The reviewing court can dream up uh, the reasons. uh, What interests might have the legislature been pursuing and how might the classifications used pursue that legitimate or permissible interest advance it? The court can dream all that up under deferential rational basis review. That doesn't leave a lot of ground within the law, right, within the courtroom, as it were, to contest an abortion regulation. It's not even clear... What would count as an unconstitutional abortion regulation under rational basis of view? Maybe, maybe Rehnquist said this in his dissent in Row an abortion regulation that does not recognize a health ex- uh, an exception for, for saving the life of a woman. Maybe that would fail. Maybe. But nothing else. So, outside, what do you do? Well, rational basis of view is an extremely deferential standard that facilitates the policymaking process, right? It essentially takes the courts out of overturning the results of of any legislative or policymaking process. So um, one way is to go to the policymaking process and to try to change rules, right? Um, So can you uh, have, say, states that um, allow for abortion, can they um, develop assistance funds or even do advertising in states that don't allow them saying, hey, you can come over to New York, for example, or California, get your abortion here or um, can you, there are going to be these mobile clinics that park right across the border Can you come there and get a prescription or get dispensed and actually take uh, uh, the medication you would need for, um, you know, kind of chemically induced abortion rather than a surgical one. So those kinds of things not only can happen, are happening uh, after uh, Dobbs' uh, decision in Dobbs. But these are going to raise questions about, um, you know, the comedy relationship between the states, uh, for example. And that's going to land right back in court. Uh, And so it's not as if the court is washing its hands of these decisions. They will just come back in a different guise. The Texas law, for example, criminalizes the assistance of getting an abortion. So anybody who assists. A number of companies have announced that they will provide travel funds For their employees who might be living and working in a state that has now very restrictive regulations regarding abortion to travel to a state where abortion is permitted. Well, if that happens in Texas, does that mean that that company uh, is now liable under this law, right? That they actually can, an individual citizen, because it's kind of a bounty system in Texas, uh, report that, get all their legal costs covered plus 10 grand and uh, heavy penalties leveled against the company. Um, Well, that raises a question, right? It's like, can services out of state, does that restrict how the the company can spend its money? Um, There are insurance questions there too. I mean, it's complicated, complicated. Uh, And so it's not as if it will just stay within the borders of each state. You know, there was, prior to the Civil War, a claim made most famously, by uh, uh, Stephen Douglas, who was uh, uh, in his running for Senate against Abraham Lincoln when they were contesting a Senate race. And Douglas' solution to the problem of slavery was something he called popular sovereignty, which is just let each state decide. And let's keep the Constitution neutral. uh, And that way, if you want to be a free state, you can be a free state. If you want to be a slave state, you can be a slave state. That was unworkable in in two senses, right? One is that, uh, you know, Neither side was comfortable just allowing it to exist within the borders of each state, right? I mean, states had a, uh, those who were enslaved had a way of escaping and going to free states, right? So it wasn't as if you could sort of separate the states. And you had a lot of decisions made uh, federal government that could affect, differentially, a free state or a slave state. And so people wanted to have say in the Senate, for example. But also you had the question of rights, right? Um, is... Is there a right to own another human being or isn't there? What is your standing and status uh, as as a human being? Do you have this fundamental right or don't you? Uh, And you don't have a fundamental right if it can be decided up or down, depending on which jurisdiction you have to wander into, right? That's not what it means to have a right. What it means to have a right is that you possess it as an individual and the government can only regulate it if it has extremely strong reasons. If it can regulate it for the weakest reasons, um, whenever it wants, just depending on what jurisdiction you're in, you don't have a right. So, uh, you know, we're kind of in the same situation now. Uh, That's going to be very hard to limit uh, how abortion is resolved within the borders of individual states, because they're going to be spillover phenomenon, because people move, right? Uh, so they're going to the abortion issue won't stay within state borders. And independent of that, uh, there's this question of rights, fundamental status, belonging. Uh, Are you, uh, you know, is this part of who you are as a member of our political community or not? You know, in some states, you can get a license to hunt uh, certain animals. In other states, you can't. That's the status of uh, the right to have an abortion now. There is no right. There is just simply what the state chooses to regulate and how it chooses to regulate it. Um, so, I don't think the idea that as a result of Dobbs somehow is just going to settle in states and we'll have this peaceful coexistence of patchwork laws across the United States. It's very hard to imagine. In fact, I just don't think it will happen that this will have an issue that's simply returned to the states, that in their individual capacity, they will resolve. That's one thing I think Dobbs gets wrong.
1: My last question today, with this and then a recent decision as well on religious freedom and prayers in a in a football field, do you feel like your constitutional law class has just been blown to pieces?
0: I mean, how do you even begin to handle
1: all of these coming at you because you have this structure within that?
2: It's difficult, right? I mean, it's... it's Anybody who teaches the subject knows that decisions which can be enormously consequential, uh, certainly not only to the individuals involved but to the country uh, at a given time, may be doctrinally of no great moment. So you can have a consequential decision that it's not necessary to add to the con law syllabus because we can make sense of it as students of the subject knowing what we already know. Uh, maybe there's an incremental, change or, or uh, doctrinal innovation, but it doesn't warrant adding the whole case to the syllabus. And then there are cases that are obscure, but doctrinally significant, right? And when they come along, you want to want to add them in. Now, there's no pressure from students to do so because they'd never heard of it, right? So you can, uh, you know, the next year rolls around, you can take your time to figure out where it's going to fit in the syllabus, what edited version, case you want to use, so on and so forth. Then there are those cases that are socially and politically enormously significant. They dominate the news and they significantly change doctrine. Um, And you feel an obligation uh, as an educator to instruct your students in those cases as soon as you possibly can. And uh, I'm teaching con law class right now uh, during the summer. And so I have an opportunity uh, to, to introduce some of this material in more or less real time even though I'm teaching right now, um, some of it's too late, right? I cannot tell the students, "Oh yeah, the stuff we learned about the Second Amendment three weeks ago—it's changed. So the exam's going to change." Yeah, I mean, you just have to make some hard choices. How much will this change the way in which con law is taught, and then the way in which say con law is practiced? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. Dobbs stays within. Doctrines that we're familiar with, right? And it shifts uh, uh, the review of abortion regulations from a well established standard, I mean, established in Casey 30 years ago, right? It's been around for a while, uh, to rational basis review, which is a standard that the courts work with all the time. But in the decision concerning New York State law, I made it uh, restricted uh, very greatly uh, how much you could, how easily one could carry a concealed weapon outside of the home. There, the majority seems to suggest, uh, I mean, this is, could potentially be a great earthquake uh, in constitutional law, to suggests that the right to bear arms should not be protected under strict scrutiny, that we shouldn't use these tiers of review that have structured uh, constitutional protection of rights for many decades, right? For, since the beginning of modern constitutional law, you could say. Instead, when it comes to that right, and maybe to other rights too, we have to look to the past and see if the the regulation passed by a government, whether it's state or federal government, is consistent with historical limitations. With no consideration of means-ends analysis that's fundamental to the tiers of scrutiny that the court uses. That kind of change, were it to, I mean, Maybe it'll just be kind of a cul-de-sac and it'll be a standard that applies only to the right to bear arms. Undue burden standard it only to abortion. And so it's not inconceivable that we'd have a standard that's different for protecting that right relative to other rights. But if that's used in other contexts, then yes, the syllabus is going to have to be torn up. And, uh, you know, the constitutional law taught five years from now uh, will bear very little resemblance to the way in which it's taught and practiced now, it'll be of historical interest. Right? I still have Dred Scott and Plessy v. Ferguson on my con-law syllabus. Uh, it's important to know those cases and to order to understand the genesis of modern equal protection, for example. So cases that are on the syllabus now might still remain um, in some diminished form because of their historical interest. And understanding them gives us a baseline understanding so we can better apprehend Uh, The constitutional law we have now. But that would be a big change. Huge. Will it happen? I don't know, right? That's how the common law system works. We have to wait and see how uh, how other courts uh, apply these uh, doctrines, how the court itself, importantly, applies these doctrines. In this very same term, when the court in the uh, gun rights case said that they were dispensing with tiers of scrutiny, When the court looked at whether or not a football coach could uh, pray at the 50-yard line after a game, uh, it applied to that fundamental right, fundamental right, free exercise of religion, standard tiers of scrutiny. So what does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) Welcome to my world, Meg. Welcome to our world, right, where we are all trying to figure out uh, what the, you know, some of the consequences are clear uh, of what the court has decided. But many consequences are not uh, and will become clear uh, in the coming years.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us again, Professor Bybee. Really appreciate your insight into all of this. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steinberg. Thank you for listening.
0: If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at americanbarorg forward slash lawstudent. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network,